G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, those in life chat music, and more. Dan Illick, our feature guest. Later in the show, share something from the archives and cast an eye over the charts as well. A very special Who Sent What coming within the next hour too. But first, let's dive in the box. Billy Bragg in 2020 will go one step forward, two back in a series of three-day shows across Australia, starting in Fremantle in April, where he'll perform three unique shows on consecutive nights in each town he stops at. First night will be his current set, which spans his 35-year career. The second will focus on his first three albums from the 80s and the third night from the next three albums from 1988 to 1996 releases. Bragg states, Looking forward to having some time to explore cities that I usually only get to see between the sound check and the show. The Bard of Barking goes on to say, Tried it out in Auckland recently and had a lot of fun revisiting my back pages. Other news has landed in my inbox since our last episode. Shannon and Susanna Davies, where all got our story single. A look at the view of poverty with a fuzzy slide and a blues harp. May know Shannon from the Spirit of Tasmania book. This cut recorded, it stated, in one of Australia's oldest churches, 1833 Sandstone Chapel with a mass burial site of convicts. Universal have Care Package, and to quote them, a collection of previously released Drake tracks and fan favourites from throughout his career that were, I'm still quoting, never given official release. To backtrack, previously released, just not official release. Okay, got it. More details is, from my own research, a collection of cuts from 2010 to 2016, some limited in release due to the samples used and the cost thereof. Short take, new Drake. One more from the box, Lola Scott's Heaven Knows, synth-heavy indie pop and their third single. Tune about the sounds of the bridges that the heart traverses for one to another and what happens in the void, perhaps. Let's now head to our feature guest. Dan Illick, investigative humorist, a sharp mix of journalist and comedian in one, with recent gigs as executive producer of Tonightly with Tom Ballard, and time also spent with AJ Plus as their head of satire, also part of Hungry Beast, created by Andrew Denton and team. Illick has now returned with Flair as host of Irrational Fear. As part of Julia Zamario's Adelaide Cabaret Festival, they were joined on the stage by ARIA award-winning Bradie and Wyatt, a cast of comedians, and Adelaide-based author Andrew P. Street. From their hotel, prior to taking the stage, with an open Farmers Union iced coffee at the ready, Illick spoke to Radio Notes. Dan Illick, welcome to Radio Notes. Ah, oh, thanks. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here in my bedroom at the hotel that I'm in. It's good to be here. Thank you for coming to me. Do you realise that uh, 12 floors up from you, there's a, well, there's a couple, a gent who's in a wheelchair and a lady, but they're not your parents. And they are in for a weekend. Oh, really? And they're going to see the Judy Garland show. Oh, right. And I did recommend he should see a rational fear tonight, but I don't (laughs) think they'll make it. I'm very surprised at the age of our audience. Usually our audience is filled with young people who are fun and angry at the world. And uh, the audience last night's show was decidedly older (laughs) and didn't know what a podcast was. So it was very exciting. 
the first CD that you bought was in fact uh, that of the Blind Melon. Great. Yeah. But yeah. the first album you bought was the Spin Doctors. Well, I actually bought it on cassette. cassette. So the first CD was Blind Melon, uh-huh, yeah. and the first cassette was The Spin Doctors. Talk of the Giant. But talk me through this. Yeah. I understand Apollo 440 on minidisc, because that was the sort of DJ mixing era. How, how do you know about all this stuff? <laughs> Why West Side Story on minidisc? Oh, because I, mini, I bought a minidisc player, because I wanted to do radio and make my own radio stuff. And it seemed to be the easiest, at the time, it was the easiest way to kind of record audio. So I bought it when I was like year 11 or year 10. What year was that? It would have been 96, 97. And it was just brand new. And you could also buy a pre-recorded mini discs as well. The things that I chose to buy were things that I, well, I like. I love musicals and I love, I love back then techno music. Apollo 440 was one of my favorite bands at the time. I did not know that you could buy albums on mini discs. I thought it was given to you because I was working at the Virgin Megastore where we had the laser discs. Oh, yeah. And we know how long they last. Yeah, yeah. But I don't remember the mini disc. And I would have thought Dee La Soul or a band like that would have had them. So it was great to hear that you actually could buy them. Well, as you know, mini disc was a Sony format. Sony artists were releasing mini discs. So if you weren't a Sony artist, you probably didn't release on mini disc. Which is also why Sony artists were also released on SACD because SACD is a Sony product as well, Sony medium as well. When we're talking music with Dan Illick, it started with the gang shows back in the Scouts years, did it? I, mean, I don't know. I've always had an interest in music, but certainly performing and comedy uh, is where I kind of got my interest for, for performing was through gang show. It was a scout and guide show, 144 kids on stage, trying their hardest to impress their parents. And I went along as a very impressionable 10-year-old and I remember watching it going, oh my God, those kids are just my age. I want to do that. How come they get to do that? That looks like a lot of fun. And inside the program for the Cumberland Gang Show 1992 was a form you could fill out to audition for the next year. So I filled it out and then by December when auditions came around, I went to auditions and I got in and it was awesome. And I, I, I'd, I stayed in Gang Show for 11 years. What I probably should have done was um, go to uh, a different theatrical company to do other types of performing, but Gang Show was pretty fun for me. It really taught me what, what Gang Show really lacks in artistic integrity makes up for in managing teams and learning how to get the best out of people and an ethos of pitching in and doing great work and creating work on the fly and also getting folks to give you their time to help you make something great. You're now a board member of FBI Radio. Yeah. Take us back before we talk about the training aspect that you were talking about. Yeah. Take us back to that first graveyard shift. 2003. Yeah, FBI Radio was very special. I got into radio because I was in love with a girl at university who was also involved at FBI. And because she was working there, I was like, oh, I've got to get involved with this FBI <laughs> business. But also at the same time, I've had a long love of radio. I used to call up Triple J and try and get my voice on Triple J all the time. I used to write poetry for Caroline Tran on, on Super Request. And that's why I bought the minidisc. I, got the, I have recordings of me on minidisc on Triple J doing poetry with, with Caroline Tran on Super Request for, for no good reason. And so 2003, I was at, at university, just finished university, and FBI was just starting. 
all throughout my university, there was rumors that FBI was starting. So I was always involved in kind of doing the sound IDs and kind of doing rehearsals, studio stuff for them. And then gradually got to the point where it was on air date and we had a massive party that day and they didn't have anyone to do the mid-dawn shift for the next few days. So I put my hand up to do it. And so me and my friend Julia Hobbs, who uh, I also went to university with, we did the first three in a row. It was fantastic. It was just great. Like we didn't know what we were doing. We were just learning on the fly and um, took that time to kind of um, really have fun with radio. What music was informing you at that stage? What were you spinning to the listener? I remember that one of the first tracks we ever played was something called um, Jaime's Basement. Uh, it was a Brooklyn band and then TV on the radio was also big back then. We played a lot of brand new kind of emerging artists. Wolf Mother was just fresh. They had just dropped. They came into FBI Open Day and dropped in their CD and FBI launched them in Sydney. Um, Flume was brand new too. He was like a 20-year-old kid and he came in on an FBI Open Day and gave us his first CD as well. So, you know, it was a whole lot of... Uh, incredible Sydney acts that you would definitely know the names of now, but back then nobody knew. One of your first music, in fact, your first music interview is released an album a couple of weeks ago back on July the 19th, 2019 called Adult Fantasy, the brand new one from Spod. Spod. Yeah, Out right. on Nice As Rice label. Take us back to your first music interview. Was it your first interview as well? Yeah, uh, probably would have been my first interview. Yeah, Spod. My God, how do you how did you find all this out? So I was I was pretty nervous about it because I I'd never done it uh, at that time. This interview was on afternoons on FBI. At the time, I just kind of was filling in for somebody else on FBI, and I asked Stuart Buchanan, who was the program director at the time. He's an old school radio guy in Sydney and does a lot of stuff on Double J now. And I was like, Oh, Stuart, I'm interviewing Spod. What should I ask him? And he's like, You know, maybe you could ask him about his contemporaries. Maybe you can talk to him about uh, Hardmar Superstar and other people like that. And uh, you know, ha- really, you know, if you like his music, just you know, talk about the music, man. It's cool. So. Yeah, I and I became friends with um with Brent, who is Spod, mm-hmm. from that first album he created. He created a definitive album of, of that era, I reckon, for city music. Summertime was a track that is just still so good today. That album really triggers uh, fond memories of doing early shifts at FBI and living in Sydney as a, as a twenty-something. When you're just chillaxing, it's not part of a production, you don't have to share it on stage, it's yeah. not even a romantic thing. What's the music that Dan Illick listens to in the privacy of his own world? Look, I really love new stuff all the time. I'm really hungry for new stuff that gets me moving. And TK Mazda, I love... Is that because you're in Adelaide that you mention that? No, no, she's from Adelaide. Oh, she is so great. Uh, her music, I listened to that a lot in LA when I, li- when I was living in LA a couple of years back. I ran to that, to, ran to her work. Uh, Lizzo at the moment, I saw Lizzo at South by Southwest just before she kind of broke wide a couple of years ago and I fell in love with her. She's great. Her latest album is really good. What else have I been listening to? Uh, Pinyao's old stuff is still good. It's music I can move to and music that I can see things with. So for me, it's about a cinematic experience. So if I can see a story or I have a nice visual when I'm listening to something in my head, then I love it because I'm a kind of I'm a visual visual person as well as, as a filmmaker. So I'm always looking for great tracks I can put on a TVC or something. Your best live music experience to date? You know... 
been, I've had, I've seen so many gigs. I've had so, I remember seeing Fat Boy Slim at the big day out. In the boiler room. In the boiler room in Sydney, holding up my MIDI disc, recording it, thinking it was the coolest shit ever. But there is nothing that can quite compete with sitting in a dingy basement with a whole bunch of musical theatre loving queer people singing along to musical songs at Marie's basement in uh, in New York City. That is a in terms of a live music experience, that is pretty special. <laughs> I got close last night. I'm a bit croaky because I was singing. Lewis Hobber and I were singing musical songs uh, late in, late into the night at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival at a bar nearby. So that was pretty fun. Take us to New York. And Marie's basement is a is a well known piano bar in Greenwich Village. It is a tiny it is a tiny room. It's about twice the size of this of this hotel room. Mm-hmm. Uh, one end is is a very wet bar, and and then there's folks who are just overpouring drinks down there, giving laissez-faire amounts of money for alcohol, then the room is usually jammed with lots of people who love musical theatre. And there's a piano. And the piano is dotted with music sheets from musicals (laughs) all around it. And the piano is old and it's rickety and... People who play it know in their heads, they don't even need the music. They often know every song to every musical ever made and people are just drunk yelling out requests and the pianist is playing and then everybody around is singing to the top, to the best of their ability along. And it is just a wonderful, cathartic, excellent experience. Talk us through your work with Tim Minchin and how Tim Minchin has helped you over the years. Tim is absolutely brilliant as, you know, me saying that doesn't matter. Everyone, the whole world thinks he's brilliant, which is yeah. why I like to cut him down from side to time, to just size from time to time, because you know he doesn't need everyone telling him he's brilliant. Um, but he is—he's a, a brilliant, generous man who I've had the fortune of kind of interviewing and working with from the very early days. I remember going to see him at Cabaret Voltaire at the bottom of the Seymour Centre, probably in two thousand and four, when he was not really anyone. He was still Tim Minchin, but he was just kind of getting into his persona. And there was probably thirty people in that room watching him do cabaret but I knew he was something special because I had him on FBI around that time and then interviewed him after I saw the show and I was talking to him on air and as he was talking we were doing a ticket giveaway and just you'd never ever see all the lights on FBI light up but I don't know what it was that he said but every single light was flashing people really wanted a bit of Tim and he was just a beautiful, he still is, a wonderful, eloquent, deep-thinking person who creates extraordinary work. And from around that time, 2003, 2004, we worked together on Ronnie John's. He did the music for um, the Third Degree Pilot, where he played songs with us and wrote satirical songs of his own to include in the pitch. So we did this, like, I'm, I'm, I feel like right now I'm... I'm going through my filing cabinet in my head of yeah. memories and trying to dust them off, trying to articulate the story of... He was in the room with us. We are in a community hall by the water at Sydney Harbour and we had these executives from Channel 10 sitting at opposite us in the, in the middle of this hall and we were sitting on the other side of the room reading out scripts and making them laugh and Tim was doing all the music and Tim sang songs as well. So it was this great kind of soft pitch to the TV network and the network loved it and they, they gave us a pilot and they gave us six episodes and they gave us 12 episodes and Tim at the time was just on his own journey so he didn't end up kind of hanging out with us for much of the third degree TV writing process because he went off to Edinburgh and then became super famous so he didn't need us after that 
We're speaking to Dan Illick at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. You're here on invitation of the one and only Julia Zemiro uh. in that frame of the importance of politics and cabaret because that's what you've been invited here to do is to add some politics to it. That's the vibe I get from Zemiro. Oh, Zemiro asked me to come here and bring some sexy. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So Sorry, uh, I'm, I bringing, I'm bringing the sexy. No, politics and cabaret are pretty much the same thing. Cabaret is an art form that is essentially created to entertain people and to criticise the government to their faces, right under their noses in pre-war Germany. And that's kind of that's kind of where it all kind of took off for Cabaret. Hi, I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. We're from the West Wing Weekly, and you're currently listening to Radio Notes. Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music and more. You can join us on the West Wing Weekly for an episode-by-episode breakdown of the television show The West Wing. Josh was the star of the show. And we give you behind-the-scenes insights and deep dives into the issues raised in the storylines of the show. You can find us on Radiotopia.fm or through your favorite podcaster. For now, back to John Merch and Radio Notes. You're a son of a migrant family. Your father came to Australia in 1951 with a family book. Can you talk to us about how that has influenced your journey as a performer? How did you get this information? Where, what... <laughs> I don't think I've told anyone this. Dad was born in Nazi Germany, so the family book is not a passport. It's a book that is for the entire family. It's like a group passport for your entire family. And the fascinating thing about the family book is that it's Dad's family book anyway, is that it's got, because the government of the day was a Nazi party, it's got swastikas all the way through it. Like it's got stamps. Like it's such a weird thing. It kind of brings that history into modern day for me when I look at it because it's like, oh, my God, uh, my dad actually grew up under the Nazis. That's so interesting. In terms of how dad's immigrant story affect me or influence me, it's kind of um, I have a great appreciation for the migrant story. I have a great appreciation for migrants and what they do and how they rebuild their lives in other places. My mum's family are also immigrants. They came out from... Uh, Lebanon and Italy pre-war. And yeah, so it, it's it, I find it fascinating how people move countries and create their lives and make success out of their lives and out of hardship. So it's um, I have a certain empathy for migrants and, and people like that. And dad was also a solicitor for many, many years, for 40 years. And he helped many migrants set up in Australia. He helped them navigate the Australian legal process from all over the world, from Asia to uh, the Middle East to to the Balkan countries where he, where his family is from. So mm. it's, it's interesting growing up seeing folks of, who don't look like me in my living room where dad worked uh, help them kind of make their way in Australia. So it's, and those people were always so appreciative of dad's work as a lawyer that they became some of his closest friends. And yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty wild. Dad, dad really helped out a lot of um, new, new Australians. Funeral song, you've said that the LCD sound system, Someone Great, should be your funeral song. <laughs> yeah, because I'm someone great and people should cry and it's going to make people cry. It makes me cry the time, every time I hear it. So when I get cut out of the coffin, I want someone to play that so every person in the room could have a big old boo-hoo over me and go, yeah, he was great. Yeah, we should have spoken to him before he died. Why did we let him live in squalor for so long? <laughs> Can music change politics? I think it used to be able to. 
Talk us through that. Uh, now, look, here's the thing. As with comedy, as with journalism, as with music, right now we're living in a really interesting time where nothing much affects anything else. <laughs> and while we do have these interesting democratised tools that get stuff in front of people, we're no, we are no longer a mass of humanity. We're no longer a mass market for media. We are a niche market for media. And all these little splintered niche markets are, are communicated to on an individual basis. This is a very academic kind of thing I've been thinking about a lot, so bear with me. As with news, comedy, music, uh, I feel like they're all the same kind of communication that it only reaches the same audience that is interested in it. And I, I don't think anybody whose mind is going to be changed by a song will ever hear the song that is designed to change somebody's mind. And I feel like these days, because of the internet, while, yes, it has been an enormous tool for democracy, right now it's not because of the algorithms run by public companies that funnel us into smaller and smaller groups. So I feel like if we had the music today and we was our, our audience as an audience, as a, as a global unified media audience, we're in one kind of group, I feel like music today would still be a really effective tool for changing people's minds. <laughs> I feel like comedy would be an effective tool for changing people's minds. I feel like people consuming different points of view and considering a range of views uh, and messages, that's great for democracy. But I feel like right now, at this moment, 2019, with six companies effectively owning the attention of us all, we are kind of split into these micro groups that only receive messages we want to receive. So my answer is no. Is political music good? Yes. Is, is the political music that's been made today good? Is the satire being made today as good as it's always been? Yeah, it, some of the best stuff is being made right now. Will it change people's minds in 2019? No. Will it change people's minds in 2015? Might have done. You know, right. I feel like the change has been over the last six years. A few years ago, Irrational Fear, which is both a podcast but also much, much more, you did decide to give it a rest and now you're back on. Yeah. So does that mean you've got new insight on how Irrational Fear as the message, as in the communication channel, can work now? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be like a mass communication channel. I think I'm just quite happy to be preached the choir. It's, it's the point where I'm just doing it because I like doing it and it's fun. And I used to do it because I thought, I thought we needed to make something like that and have something like that on television. So I was working really hard to make a TV product that killed in the room in stage was really great online, had an excellent podcast and it had a little small following that could convince a, a television executive that a, that a daily show should exist in Australia. And when we couldn't get it up in 2014, I was really embarrassed and I just left the country and I went to work for Al Jazeera because that's where the opportunity was to make the kind of stuff that I wanted to make. And now by the time I got back from America, there were like seven shows on television that were like it. One of those shows was Tonightly, which I ended up becoming the boss of. So that was okay. You know, but it was like one of those things where I went away for a little bit because I just couldn't get it up. And when I returned, there was like, you know, five shows that were 
all hosted by white guys, all doing the stuff that <laughs> I wanted to do a long time ago. Tonightly with Tom Ballard is yeah. the full title of that, for which you were the boss of Till It's End. But what Tom Ballard was able to do with your help and also the musical guests as well on that, bringing us back to music, mm. included an aria for some of the guests, uh, Bridie and White, who have been touring with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tonightly with Tom Ballard was a great experience and it really pulled together some of the best minds, best comedy minds in Australia. And we worked so hard trying to make something really great. Yeah, Bride in White, they are incredible improvisational musicians and, and also non-improvisational musicians as well. <laughs> they do both kinds. They've worked together for years and they're just such great, joyful people to be around and they make such great work. And it was really cool to be able to back them and back Bridie's idea for Sex Pest and kind of get that in a position where we could give it enough resources to make it really great. And then, you know, sell it down the line, get it released and got them the aria. So they're just super talented. And when you're in a position like I was with Snightly with Tom Ballard, it was such a, a privilege for me to facilitate great work by great comedians to make really cool things. It was, as a kid, I always wanted to work on a show like The Late Show, the DJ's Late Show. And I really felt like that Tonightly experience is probably that experience. I got to be Michael Hirsch for six months. And that was great. Dan Illick, where are you now? I'm just taking this time to build my own work and create um, good things that I like doing. So Irrational Fear is really great. The last couple of months, Irrational Fear has paid the bills, which is fantastic. And so I'm trying to find ways to keep Irrational Fear going, that I can keep building it and keep building an audience for it and keep putting on shows around the country where Irrational Fear can be the thing that I do as a job. And it's getting to the point where it might be that way. Um, but the main thing is the podcast and the email list. So if you go to rationalfear.com and give us your email, then I'll send you the podcast every time we release one. But also send you an email with fresh content all the way throughout it. Can I ask you this question? Hmm. What was your relationship with Mark Colvin? Uh, Mark Colvin. He was a wonderful mentor of mine. Uh, Mark Colvin is an absolute legend. Well, actually, I kind of knew him on Twitter, as many people did. And then when I got a job at Hungry Beast, I became friends with him through the ABC. And I always have this great memory of going to a dinner party at Lee Sayers' house, Clang, and he would walk through the back door holding a bottle of red. Uh, Lee would not park in her parking spot, which is right at the back door, but allow him to park right behind. So because of his disability, he yeah. couldn't walk very far. So he would, he would park right in the, in the back of her house and then hobble out with his walking sticks and a bottle of, like a gigantic bottle of red and planned to drink the entire thing. <laughs> and I was just like, what a bloody legend. Like, he's just a character who's really funny, really smart, really had a curiosity for life and did so many cool things in his career as a journalist, as just an explorer of the world that we kind of made jokes with each other all the time and I, I would just catch up with him occasionally at the local coffee shop where where he get dialysis done um, in Darlinghurst and uh, I'd bump into him a few times at the Burke Street Bakery so I'd often cancel the rest of the hour's appointments just to hang out with Mark and read the paper and make jokes about politics. But yeah, he was always a, a wonderful friend, mentor and collaborator and uh and people at the ABC were scared of him. You know, they were like, oh, Mark, you know, Mark Colvin, you know, we, we can't, we can't annoy Mark. Let's not annoy Mark, you know, and let's not get Mark to do something. But Mark had this fantastic sense of humour and I would get him to do everything for me. He did a couple of Irrational Fear sketches for me. One of my favourite sketches was him 
doing coverage of Rob Oakshot's valedictory speech. I was making a rational fear for Radio National back then. I was in the studio mixing it and I said to the engineer, oh, you know, it'd be great. And we just need a sketch here with like a, a journalist covering Rob Oakeshott's valedictory speech and saying how it's gone on for three days. Now, for those outside of Australia, Rob Oakeshott was one of the deciding factors of a minority government for Julia Gillard, the Prime Minister, (laughs) and he went on for ages. It wasn't very long. Look, Rob, everyone makes fun of Rob Oakeshott, but it was 15 minutes. I think 15 minutes is a fine amount of time to hold the country's attention, to express why you will be good as a crossbench and have all the power that you have within a minority government. I think that is completely fine. I'm defending Rob Oakeshott here. It wasn't long. It became a trope. So when he when he retired, I just thought, oh, yeah, we, well, he's retired, so let's just do the, a joke on the valedictory speech. We are sitting at the ABC, and I said, oh, maybe Colvin will do it. And the engineer was like, oh, no, we can't get Colvin. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll just call him up. He'll just come down and do it. I called him up and said, G'day, Dan. I'm on holiday in Barrel. I'm not in the studio at the moment. I can't, I can't pop in to do it for you. And I said, oh, could you just record it on your phone? And send it to me. Oh, how do I do that? And I said, well, you just open up Memo on your phone and just sit in your car and just record it and then just email it to me. Okay, I'll give it a go. And then five minutes later, bloop, bloop, an email with Mark Colvin comes in and the file's there. It sounds pitch perfect. And we mixed this great sketch together. And he was just perfect. He just, he just read the script. He was like, please tell my family I love them and send me some nutritious snacks. I don't know how much longer I can last. And he was just fantastic. He died... I heard, this is probably about five years ago, I heard that he was having a bit of a wobble. So Colvin sometimes has these things where he disappears for a couple of months because his bloods are so messed up and nobody really knows what's going on. So I sent him a text. I said, I hear having a bit of a wobble. I uh, hope you're okay. He sent me a nice message back saying that everything's fine and he will, he'll be back at work in a, in, a, in a day or so. And I said, great. Um, can I have your watch? And he said, fuck off, Elish. I'm not your real dad. So funny. I was at a Walkley's dinner a couple of weeks ago and I was sitting with a bunch of funny people, including James Jeffrey and Amanda Mead and Anita Jacoby and some really fabulous journalists. And we were all talking about Mark Colvin's texts and people whipped out their phones, read out texts from Mark Colvin. Some of the most defamatory, hilarious uh, text messages <laughs> that you'll ever read. And I said, you know what would be a great podcast? Getting people to come and read their texts from Mark Colvin. <laughs> and that could be a great, just a one-off irrational fear episode. <laughs> I love radio. I love ABC Sydney. I love doing breakfast on there. I love filling in for James Valentine when they have the odd shift. That's really great fun. Like ABC radio is really great fun. A couple of years. I still remember streaming you on Up For It Breakfast on FBI back in the 2000s. You were great. Why were you doing that? That was 2003. I only did that for like five months and then I ended up getting a job at Funniest Home Videos. <laughs> Actually on TV. Yeah. Can we have a late night variety show like a Letterman or something in Australia or have we missed that boat? Can it happen? A late night variety show at 9.30 on Channel 9, that kind of thing. I think so. I think you can. I don't see why not. Would you put put your hand up for it? In a perfect world, a rational fear would be in that position, maybe in a less kind of political sense and have more fun, but really easy show to do. Like it'd be so easy to um, show run and host a show like that. It'd be great fun to do and... Uh, yeah, I mean, it'd be great. I'd love to do that. But I don't think a, oh, I think there's room for a woman host, to be honest. So and maybe a producing role you might take. Yeah, I'd love to EP a show. I'd love to EP a show like that. I reckon there's so much great talent out there who could host a show like that. I think someone like Susie Youssef would be an absolutely incredible host. I've seen Susie 
MC shows at the Enmore Theatre and absolutely crush and dominate an audience there. And she is absolutely terrific as an MC. And she is a terrific, warm person who knows the comedy community back to front. And she would be an absolute mega superstar and she could definitely host her own show like that. She would be the perfect choice for something like that. To be Wherever honest. you end up, Dan Illick, the absolute best. Thanks for joining Radio Notes. Oh, thanks for having me. Dan Illick can be found online at danillick.com and to keep up to date with newsletter and his podcast, irrationalfear.com. Live on stage, Irrational Fear can be experienced 8th of August 2019 in Sydney, Australia with guests including Ray Martin, Kate McClimmett, Ben Fordham and Alice Workman. 7th of September 2019 in Canberra, Australia with guests Mike Bowers, Shalala Madora and Mark Humphreys. On my desk at the moment is a physical copy of Goodbye Newsroom. It's the debut novel by Adelaide author Michelle Prack, known as Pracky on Twitter, which is where I first encountered their fine wordsmith ways. The book tells of two sisters, both out-of-work journalists, one of them from the print era, the other of the digital age, set off on making their new website with their combined skills, but will the sharing of one of the sisters' personal stories tear them apart? There's also some touching romance woven in too. Currently on my to-read pile, but will be launched officially in coming weeks at time of this record, an independent release to make it easier. We'll share the link for Goodbye Newsroom in the show notes. Radio Notes Discoveries. Mike Patton, he of Faith No More, through his own label Ipecac Records, has a new release on the horizon, Corpse Flower, working together with Jean-Claude Vanard, Background is they met while working on a Ginsberg retrospective back in 2011. Funk Beat from a 22-year-old Omar Apollo. His latest is called Ashamed. Not their first cut, but one getting them through some stream right now. Some may well know this Mexican-American singer-songwriter from their You Got Me tune from 2017. Recently took to the stage at Lollapalooza. Chalk followed on Instagram, where Radio Notes podcast there, by the way, which led me to discover the latest after 24 years from the Brisbane Australian band. It's called The Sometimes Always, and it's fresh sounding with warmth of the 90s depth and the guitar riff. It really feels like a letter written now through song to self of the past. As the song ends, there is a was of what was just was kind of vibe. Through the journey to that point makes this first new cut in many decades worth a listen, taken, I believe, from a future album called The Quiet City. One more, Clario, has just released their debut album, Immunity. Millions of views on YouTube, cited as due to the algorithm system of that very website. But now comes an album that includes the cut bags that you can now show real metal of the strength of the music and celebrates their 21st in a few weeks' time too. Some will claim they've been made by marketing. Others, at The Guardian for example, modern-day Julian Hatfield. Who sent what? Little Wise, as I was one of the folks that supported their pausable campaign, has sent me an advanced copy of their second album. It will be released on white vinyl, digital and CD that is available for pre-order right now and will be released later in the year. In fact, we'll do a review of the release on the show's webpage then, but for now, some details for you. 
Want It All is the title of the follow-up to Lil Wise's debut, Silver Birch, from 2016. Contains 10 driving numbers produced and recorded at the Avery Studios. Features the singles including the title track, Want It All, and the latest, which is also the opening cut to the album, Devil Off My Back. With One It All, you will get all the music wonderment from what I'm confident to say to be one of the best independent Australian singer-songwriter albums of 2019. One of the great Australian podcasts at the moment that was noted as such also in the New York Times in recent days is Willosophy, where broadcaster Will Anderson asks folks he likes about their philosophies. Guests have included Clementine Ford, Mark Marin, Deanne Smith, Ben Lee, Julia Zamiro, to name a few. Oh, and as well, topical for today's episodes, a great chats with Tim Minchin and Mark Colvin as well. They've recently released episode 100 and also a Patreon that I've personally signed up to for $20 a month. You can for as little as a dollar a month and the funds go to pay James Fosdyke, who I commissioned to do my own artwork, radio producer Mike and Mike Hull, the US-based technical producer of Will's many podcasts. Not a cent goes to Will, it goes to the great team that is supporting his great podcast. To find out more details, head along to patreon.com backslash willosophy. Decide to give that a bit of a plug today because uh, it's been a great little listen. So don't miss out. Patreon.com backslash philosophy if you want to chip in a dollar or more. Dive into the archives. Joining us online now is Mr. Peter Hook. Welcome to Radio Notes. Hello, mate. You're currently on tour with two of the albums from New Order. How has the experience been? We started with uh, Unknown Pleasures and Closer. Then we did Still in its entirety. And then New Order-wise, we've done Movement, Power Corruption and Lies. And now we're on Low Life and Brotherhood. We're actually counting down. I've had the great pleasure over the years to speak to a number of bass players. I'm wondering what that experience has been like as a self-taught bass player. I'm still here, um, still performing, um, as my mother so wonderfully puts it. So, yeah, uh, self-taught. I don't think that it's a disadvantage. Uh, I can't read music, never have done. Um, And I think that in a funny way, I'd say that it enables you to be a little bit more creative, wild, in that you don't know the rules, and there aren't any rules while well, you're self-taught. You're just making them up. So uh, I do think that for, from our point of view with Joy Division and New Order, I think that the, it gave us a lot of freedom. Bass players are always very underrated, um, I think, in, in music. And when I became a bass player, uh, I vowed that I wouldn't be stood at the back playing the low notes. I'd be up the front thrusting... Uh, valiantly, and I'm still able to do that, thank God. In recent months, I've spoken with James Williamson, who's the bass player for Iggy Pop and the Stooges. He also was a songwriter. You are also a songwriter. Is there an advantage about being a bassist and a songwriter? No, uh, I'd say that the ability to play an instrument Uh, Many, many people have it, you know, in England now, and I'm sure in Australia, there's a lot of schools, music schools that you can go to that teach you to play. The hardest thing in the world to learn is songwriting. Mm. Songwriting is achieved by very few people. 
You know, I mean, it was interesting. I went to a PRS, which are the ones that collect all the songwriting royalties, awards dinner in England, and they had 700,000 members who were songwriters, and only 2,000 made a full-time living from songwriting. And I was one of those 2,000. So it just shows you what an art it is, songwriting. And it's very difficult to teach. It's sort of intangible the way that people do it so yeah i mean it is a skill of it i was very lucky to not only be able to play but also to um to write so yeah you've written for example tunes like love will tear us apart with ian curtis in an afternoon you say where blue monday took way longer some of them come in minutes uh, and some of them literally like in the um blue monday wasn't that bad actually as okay. i remember it was it was done sporadically over a couple of months but it came together quite quickly at the end because we, we, we were actually recording it for an LP. But The Perfect Kiss, for example, which started as a standalone song, that took us nine months to complete. So, you know, some of them do come in an afternoon and it's amazing. You know, I mean, a wonderful song like Love Will Tear Us Apart is a gift. It really is a gift. And, you know, I'm glad in my career that I've been handed a few by the, uh, the good Lord. I must have done something right. What's been your favourite version of Love Will Tear Us Apart? The best one I've heard was one that Malcolm McLaren did. He did a sound clash with Love Will Keep Us Together. And he merged the two. It was supposed to be for an LP that he was doing just before he died. There was one track on Kill Bill, I think, that was um, two tracks put together by Malcolm. Uh, And that's a wonderful track. It was done by a guy in Paris. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's my favourite. Love Will Keep Us Together and Love Will Tear Us Apart mashed. You mentioned Perfect Kiss. How have you been translating that live with the light? We, the light, <laughs> do the proper nine-minute version, uh, the way it was written and the way it was recorded as a 12-inch. So the, our gimmick, if you like, is to stay very faithful to the recordings. Towards the end of New Order, before we split up in 2007, there was a certain attitude that we had to change everything. You know, we were bored. We were bored with everything. I mean, to be honest with you, we, we hardly played any songs. We only played like 15 or 17 at the most of our repertoire, which was about 200 songs. Uh, and we were very stuck in a rut, to my mind. And we changed everything, jazzed it up, dancified everything. And luckily now I've realized that that was a mistake and I've gone back to the way they were written and the way that they were recorded. Having the light tour with you now, do you feel like, and you have done your own solo material and other band material apart from Joy Division New Order format, is there another new band that Peter Hook has got his eye on in the next five or ten years? (laughs) Oh my God, man, I'm too old. Too old to start a band from scratch. It's very difficult these days you know, to, to begin again in, in the way that the world accepts recorded music and the way that it markets recorded music. You know, I mean, I went through a period in the 80s and 90s where we sold millions of records and you were treated like kings by your record company. You know, the record company used to take you out for dinner. Nowadays, you have to take the record company out for dinner. But they just don't make any money. They don't sell any records. The whole climate has changed thanks to the internet. And, you know, uh, us older musicians have a little struggle with that. Newer musicians don't have any choice, do they? They, they just get what they're given and they, they have to change and adapt and, and make the internet work for them. 
but I do struggle to come to terms with it. So I'm, I'm you know, it's a little bit odd. I mean, the last band I had was Free Bass, where that I did with Manny from the Stone Roses and Andy Rourke from the Smiths, mm. which was very successful. But it was difficult, you know. I mean, we're all old men. Old men love getting their own way. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that with your dad. But they, they tend to be very unmalleable, very difficult yeah. to, to get them to move in. I'm an old man. I don't want people criticizing me or contradicting me. I, I, I like to get my own way these days. It's, it's something that happens to you as you get old. Everybody will find out. <laughs> the great thing I like about you also is that you're a listener when it comes to being a producer of records. I was very inspired by the Inspiral Carpets and as much with the Stone Roses and the work that you did with them. The interesting thing about the Inspirals and Stone Roses was, was that I did it for nothing. <laughs> I, I did it for love of music. Uh, and I remember the uh, the manager of the of Stone Roses came round and insisted that I got paid because he thought I'd done a great job. And I was very surprised to get paid. That's how naive and um, full of life we were at that time in 1986. Yeah. The, the Inspirals was a pleasure. I'd known them for years. Clint Boone is still one of my best friends. I was best man at his wedding. I'm also godfather to two of his children. So, you know, these people that you pick up that are your friends, it's, they're, they're a pleasure to work with. And I actually really enjoyed playing with the Inspirals. I played on one of their tracks, which was great. So it's, it's nice when your friends and your peers trust you in that thing. And then to turn out and be part of a huge part of the band's history, like the Stone Roses, yeah. I, I do think I've done something right in a past life. I'm very lucky. You know, I mean, Manchester, which created the Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays, um, Inspirals, all those great bands, was an amazing time. You know, and to be part of it as alongside punk with the Hacienda, with Acid House, Manchester, uh, you know, I've been at many, many musical moments in my life, I have, I must admit. You don't include the Smiths when you're talking about Manchester bands then. Have you read Morrissey's bio? I haven't, should I? <laughs> Do you know what? I haven't. And I could ask you the same question. No, I haven't read it either, but people I know have read it. And interestingly, the, the thing they quote to me, because I'm going through this big legal case with New Order at the moment, mm -hmm. is that I should read it because of Morris's notes about his legal case. I believe it's a very um, bitter might be the, the, the wrong word. Um, he, he's not full of fun, is he, Morrissey? So really, maybe for a whole book, it, it could be a bit draining. But I, it is on my list to read, just simply for, for that legal aspect, I must say. I was a Cure fan. I'm not sure how that sits with you, and I may have gotten into trouble with you by saying Fine. that. The Cure, uh, I met Robert Smith when we supported them as Joy Division, uh, and I thought he was an arrogant prick. <laughs> I met him again, funnily enough, uh, when he played with Susie and the Banshees, and he wasn't too bad then. Uh, I got on very well with Susie and uh, the rest of the Banshees, so that was okay. And I must admit, I've actually turned into a fan of his music. The Cure were the only band that my mother used to phone me up and say to me, Peter, have you heard this group, The Cure, they don't half sound like you. Uh, in a funny way, I always took it as a compliment because the bass player used to emulate me greatly mm. uh, and you know in songs like In Between Days and The Walk 
um, they did get into uh, whether it was a homage or whether it was tongue in cheek. Uh, they, they there was a little bit of friction, uh, I think, there. But no, I mean, you know, the thing is, is that un- unless you live with these people, uh, you never get past, shall we say, their stage persona. So I'm not really the, the probably the best person to ask. Great musicians, and I, I actually respect him as a musician a lot. And when I DJ, I actually play a couple of Cure tracks. Which track should we play from The Cure that you might have been enjoying recently? Well, it's got to be Love Cats. There you go. Classic song there, The Love Cats by The Cure. We'll move over that Morrissey was a bit of a downer on Joy Division. The Life and Times of Ian Curtis... It's been said that the guys in the band, including yourself, Mr. Hook, had no idea what Ian may have been going through at the time. Over the years, have you reflected and thought maybe we as a society could be looking at things differently in terms of someone's mental health? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the thing is is that Ian was a, a very strong human being and he hid it very well. And the last thing on earth he wanted you to do was to feel sorry for him. And he fought that illness tooth and nail. So to be honest with you, he was by no means a gibbering wreck in the corner, crying. He was a strong man. He hid it well. He put up with it well. You know, the, the trouble is, is that the, the doctors and the people that were treating him, they, they didn't know much about what they were doing. And I thought a very telling moment was actually in the Joy Division documentary when they took Ian's prescription for his illness to a modern-day specialist. And the modern-day specialist said this was guaranteed to kill him, whether he had epilepsy or not. Mm. Uh, And I thought that that was a very telling moment. It's all about education. These days, there is a more... um, People are more tuned in with other people. Uh, there's There's an empathy that people have and a respect for illnesses that we didn't have in the 70s. You know, and you have to remember it was 70. It was 79. Mm-hmm. 78 actually when Ian first got ill he suffered with it for nearly two years you know Joy Division were only professional for six months but Ian had been an epileptic for nearly two years so yeah I mean you, you do have to put these things into context and the world's a much better more educated more informed place you know and that's what it is about people people look at people and worry about them where in those days especially in north of England mate I'll tell you that there was an attitude was that you never opened up or you never impinged on anybody in that way and you know I'm glad to see the back of that you've got your son Jack Bates in the band can I ask is there (laughs) open conversations now and maybe there always has been how guys are actually feeling those conversations I have a I have a completely different relationship with my son than my father had with me Mm. Um, it's much more, I suppose, what we'd say, touchy-feely in, in a physical way and also an emotional way. My father, my stepfather, God rest his soul, was a, was a very cold man, a very hard man. Uh, and I'm not like that with him at all. You know, I mean, if anything, I'd like to think that if Jack had a problem of any kind, he'd be able to come to me or my wife and say, you know, and, and tell us because we, we, we treat him as a friend. You know, we try and be good parents, but you do try and get an empathy in that we're all in this life together, you know, and it's about enjoying yourselves together. And, and my son is, I'm very lucky to say, is not only a fantastic musician, but he's also a great friend. I know that you've just started following on the tweet, Mr. Steve Kilby of the church. Is there a working relationship between you two? 
No, no. It's, um, we, we tweet <laughs> in the same way that I tweet with a lot of people. Um, so, no, we, we haven't got a working relationship now. Not yet. Always say you never know. You guys would be great together. Your views on John Peel's legacy. John Peel was so influential in my career. It, it really was a pleasure to meet him. Uh, a pleasure to call him a friend, actually, as, as he went through with his career. He was one of those people that, you know, I mean, he, he, I don't know if it's changed or I don't know if it's different for you, but radio in England is, is very marshaled, it's very corporate. John broke the mold with regards to that. He would play stuff that he thought was crap. He'd play stuff that he thought was fantastic. He'd play stuff that he thought was weird. And that's what the world needs more of. It needs more adventure create excitement in everything that you're doing so that everybody doesn't have to agree with you you know what, what i hate about music especially about radio tends to be a, a culture of um who can we least offend let's least offend everybody by all sounding the same and i think that that's dreadful and i think john stood up for the differences in the world that make it interesting peter hook i totally agree with you i would like to wish you finally a happy birthday which i believe is tomorrow yes i'm, I'm 59 tomorrow God, I can't believe it. Couldn't pick a better place to be in. I'm just looking at the ocean in Perth, watching the surf as the sun goes down, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm a very lucky boy. When I was a teenager, I used to dance to your music at 4am in the morning, so absolute pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. <laughs> You're welcome, mate. Take care of yourself. Peter Hook from the archives from February 2015, and at time of record, is back in Australia, touring, in fact, heading to Perth at the end of the week. Time now to go off the charts. In the singles, Tones and I Dance Monkey pushes Lil Nas X Old Country Road to two. Highest debut win at 19, not 13, is Taylor Swift's Archer. While Jessica Mayboy's Little Thing jumps four to make the top 40 at 40. In albums, Shira and Eilish hold their one and two spots respectively, with NF in at three, with The Search, The Lion King in at four, dropping from three last week. Drum roll, round of applause and a level of cheer for a debut making number one Australian artist album chart spot and number five in the overall album charts at time of release. Congratulations to Angie McMahon and their album Salt, which is also the number one vinyl album release, pushing Queen to second spot there. That's a quick look at the charts, thanks to information provided by the Australian Recording Industry Association. Away from that external validation which I have needed for a long time and into that internal validation where I am proud of what I'm creating on a, on a deeper level and where I'm actively trying to one-up myself every time I'm creating something as opposed to actively trying to get someone else to tell me that I've one-up to myself. There's a concept in evolutionary psychology of the external audience and the internal audience. And the external audience matters because you need to know that you are appreciated in the world and you need to know that you have value and you need to know that you have a place. And we are social beings and our whole society is built on this structure of providing value to each other. So the external validation actually is important. It actually does matter. But it doesn't mean anything if your internal audience is saying, eh, you didn't really try that hard on that thing. Uh, you kind of put in 50% of the effort that you could have. And so I'm focusing on betterness. I want my internal audience to be proud of me no matter what the external audience says. That's Sam Buckingham, our feature guest next episode here on Radio Notes. 
Thanks very much to our special guest this episode, Dan Illick from Irrational Fear. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 